is really good to see all of you here this morning. I want to welcome you to this uh, time of worship. And if you're a guest with us today, we're delighted that you're here. We're starting off this new series, Resilient. If you're worshiping with us online, we're grateful that you're with us too at socc.tv. And um, we're going to take a look at the life of Daniel. I don't know if you caught the headlines or not. Iraqi forces attack, government facilities raided, captives taken. The breaking news relates that the captives were moved to facility not far from Baghdad. And you say, wait a minute, I, I don't remember catching that. That's okay. It's old news. 2,600 years old news. The year is 605 B.C. The Iraqis, or Babylonians as they were called at that time, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and took captive the nobility of the palace. These youths suddenly and deliberately removed from the royal post and subjected to a relocation journey as the crow flies would have been about 600 miles, find their lives forever changed. The destination, Babylon, which is a city or was a city that is located not far from modern-day Baghdad. And oh my, what a city it was. At one time, the massive walls stretched 56 miles, enclosing some 200 square miles of the finest state-of-the-art buildings, teeming entertainment centers, thriving businesses, extravagant idolatrous temples, palaces, and home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the famous Hanging Gardens. Here's a picture of an artist's rendering of what those gardens probably look like. What extravagant beauty. Towering above the city was a 650-foot glistening enamel ziggurat reminiscent of the Tower of Babel. By the way, that's where Babylon gets his name from the ancient Tower of Babel. And that picture that you see there is actually part of the Ishtar Gate, which was a, a part of the ancient city, was excavated from the ancient city of Babylon. That's just part of it. And that, that is actually in the museum in Berlin, Germany today. If you were over there, you could see it uh, live. But, but that's just part of this great gate. And, and uh, there was a tower that looked very much like that, of that enameled uh, tiles that's, that was 650 foot into the air. To that city, Nebuchadnezzar takes this young Jewish teenager named Daniel. And it is his story that we're going to study for the next several weeks. Now, i got to tell you, I, I really enjoy biographical sermons. Uh, I, I've certainly benefited from the wisdom books like Psalms and Proverbs or the history books of the Bible, especially the book of Acts, which is the history of the church. I've been challenged by the great doctrinal passages of the New Testament, like the book of Romans or the book of Galatians, as well as from the prophetic texts of the Old and New Testaments alike. But my favorite studies... My favorite studies are always those of Bible characters. Because you see, I can relate to other human beings. Some doctrinal passages are pretty tough. Some of the prophetic texts, wow, they're really deep. But I can relate to human beings. Their strengths and their weaknesses. Their spiritual victories or their struggles in the faith. Their stories provide me with hope and help and healing in life. So... I love looking at the characters who followed the Lord throughout Scripture. And I have such admiration for Daniel. 
He is one of my favorites. Not, you know, I've got several favorites, and he's one of my top favorites in Scripture. Of the men of the Old Testament, folks, there are only two of which nothing bad has been written. Only two. Joseph of the Old Testament was one. Daniel was the other. Joseph was sold by his brothers and spent his life in Egypt. The other was Daniel, who is captured by his enemies and spent the rest of his life in Babylon. Now, even though nothing bad was written about them, they are not perfect people. But perhaps no two characters better capture the essence of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament than Joseph and Daniel. One born into a shepherding family, that would have been Joseph. The other born into a royal family, that would have been Daniel. But man, what a, what a beautiful perspective and how appropriate. Jesus came to be the Lamb of God and our chief shepherd. He also came to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. So in Joseph and in Daniel, we have both of these glorious pictures of Jesus Christ. And though Joseph and Daniel's lives were separated by 1,200 years... They were both equally committed to the Lord in faith and behavior. Now, the book of Daniel is divided into two sections. The first half is the narrative portion, which, which is his life. The second half is the prophetic portion. Uh, Daniel was the recipient of several prophecies, that some of which still apply to us today. We're going to confine, for this series, our study to the first half, the narrative portion, to take a look at his life. And I think Daniel's a great study. Because he spans every generation. His story begins when he's a teenager. And it ends with him in his golden years. So his biography appeals to all. Now if you're currently employed. Or you're hoping to be gainfully employed soon. Daniel is a terrific study of working in a less than desirable environment. With an unreasonable boss. If that's your circumstance. You're going to love Daniel. If you struggle with maintaining your faith through the setbacks of life, then Daniel is for you as well because Daniel faced multiple challenges to his faith but always found a way to remain faithful in the most difficult of moments. And if you feel like you're a minority as a believer, that you sometimes feel like you're all alone as a Christian, then studying Daniel will be an encouragement to you because he's often stood alone for his convictions without anybody else standing with him. So in these weeks leading up to Easter, folks, I want us to get to know Daniel. I want us to get to know Daniel the man. He's an ordinary guy. Daniel is not some superhuman being with, with extra measure of grace or an extra measure of faith. No, Daniel's an ordinary guy who was facing an extraordinary challenge and lived with an extraordinary opportunity to make a difference for God in a difficult place. Secondly, I want us to get to know Daniel the leader. God placed Daniel in some prickly situations, and Daniel's response provides us with leadership lessons as well. One of my favorite books that I've read in the last several years, it remains one of my favorites. I've, I've gone through it twice. I will go through it again because I like it so much, uh, is Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, Team of Rivals. And it details how President Abraham Lincoln worked with those who were his rivals in the election of 1860 and then molded them into a team that became his cabinet. The book is a wonderful study in the art of getting along with difficult and powerful and prickly personalities. 
I would suggest that the story of Daniel is much the same. It fits the very same genre. As a leader, Daniel worked through difficult, even life-threatening situations with great skill and expertise. So if you're a leader here this morning, and every one of us leads in some form or fashion, you can profit from Daniel's leadership examples. And then thirdly, I want us to get to know Daniel the follower. Because I'm convinced that before you can be a good leader, you must learn how to be a good follower. The spiritual principles that guided his decision-making as a follower of the one true God in a godless society are as relevant today as ever. And even though Daniel rose to prominence in three different kings' reigns, three foreign kings' reigns, as a matter of fact, in, in our terminology today, Daniel would have been secretary of state to three different kings. He remained first and foremost a committed follower to the king of kings and lord of lords. In these challenging times, we've got a lot to learn from Daniel. Now, his story begins in chapter 1, the first three verses. <clears throat> During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. In other words, all the gold and silver of the temple got suddenly taken away from Judah and taken into the godless, idolatrous temples in Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar took, back, took them back to the land of Babylon, placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. I am struck with how little human nature varies from generation to generation. And for the life of me, I cannot begin to imagine how it must have felt for Daniel. I just can't. I've never been in a circumstance like this. Daniel's taken away from everything he's known. He's probably about 16 years old at the time. He, he, he is taken away from his country, from his culture, from his family. We read nothing else about Daniel's family ever in the story. Whether they were killed, whether they did not make the later deportation, we don't know what happened to them, but it would appear that Daniel is separated from his family at about the age of 16 once and for all. And here he is with, another, with others of his own age group, his youth group, if you please, being chained and hauled off to Babylon. Can't you just see these, these teenagers craning their necks, looking back over to see the city of Jerusalem, that glorious city on a hill, until it disappeared behind the horizon? It would be the last time they would ever see Jerusalem, let alone be in it. I cannot imagine the anguish and the pain that must have accompanied those moments. So what can we learn? What can we learn that will help us in our daily life from Daniel. Well, here's some things. <clears throat> Remember this, life can change without warning. In the blink of an eye, in the snap of a finger, life can change. I don't know if any of you have ever played Milton Bradley's Game of Life. Uh, it was introduced 60 years ago in 1960 
to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Milton Bradley Company. Now, during the hardships of the Civil War, Bradley's printing business was about to go under, and in a last-ditch effort, he poured everything he had into printing up 45,000 game boards of a game called the Checkered Game of Life. And amazingly, even in the midst of the Civil War here in America, they sold rapidly. By 1868, Bradley's company had become our nation's largest producer of games. The game, The Checkered Game of Life, was the inspiration for the 1960 version simply called The Game of Life. And you, you know how, to, if you've played it, you, you kind of know how it works. With the spin of a wheel, each player travels down the road of life toward retirement, and, and you land on all these squares that either pays you or costs you or something. Well, the last time I played with the kids, I ended up $300,000 in debt. I had landed on every lousy square on that game board, and I wasn't even looking for the retirement square anymore. I was looking for a square that said, you're finished. All you've got to look forward to is the hereafter. And the way you play this game, you might not even make that. <laughs> you see, real life, real life is like that, only it's far more challenging, far more difficult, far more painful. Real life can change like that, in the blink of an eye. Real life, sometimes, you, you land on all the lousy days of, of life where it's, it's an unexpected bill, it's an unexpected loss, it's an unexpected pain, it's an unexpected sorrow, and it just builds up to the point where you think, I don't know if I can go on. The joys and the sorrows of real life are real. The frustrations and disappointments can't be folded up and put back into the box. They are real. Others' lives are impacted by the decisions we make. That's real. And what happens at the end of life is just as critical as what happens during life's journey. To truly appreciate Daniel's situation, we need a little historical background here. <clears throat> now, I know some of you don't really enjoy history much. I won't make this long, but you really need to understand this to understand what's happening in Daniel's life. So just grab the pew in front of you, grit your teeth, and let me go through a little bit of history here. All right? Here we go. Five years prior to this moment when Daniel and, this, and the youth group of Judea are hauled off to Babylon. Just five years before that. Things in the land of Judah were absolutely terrific. I mean, things couldn't have been better. <clears throat> the future looked bright. They were, they were economically sound. Josiah was the king of Judah, and Josiah was the best king, the most righteous king, the most spiritual king on the throne since the time of David. He was the best. One year later, in 609, he is killed in battle. And his son, Jehoiakim, comes to the throne. And Jehoiakim is as bad as his father, Josiah, was good. After the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt in the battle of Carchemish in 605, so this is four years later, they, Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. It was then that he took captive the best and the brightest of the royal household. <clears throat> and Daniel becomes the property, the property of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, to help with some biblical perspective here, <clears throat> You know the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Well, they were preaching at the same time that Daniel was a teenager. 
I'm pretty sure Daniel would have heard Jeremiah preach. Maybe even Habakkuk preach. Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim hated these preachers. Hated Jeremiah worse than any of them. Treated Jeremiah terribly. And as a matter of fact, if, if Jehoiakim had listened to the word of God, if he had followed the prophet's warnings, history would have been completely different. But because he didn't, in only 20 years, the city of Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. And everybody that lived in the land was deported to Babylon. All because God was ignored. Daniel would never return to his homeland. And a lot of others were the same shape with him. How does your future look this morning? <clears throat> In the months ahead, some of you will be planning weddings, graduation celebrations, the birth of a child, the birth of a grandchild, a move to a different house or a different city, a major anniversary, a, a trip of a lifetime, and so much more. That's how we live. We live with anticipation of the exciting moments down the road, and really we should. Well, we should, because God intends for us to plan ahead. God doesn't want us just sitting around waiting for life to happen. He wants us to plan ahead. <clears throat> Proverbs 16.1 says, We can make our own plans, but the Lord gives the right answer. Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your actions to the Lord, and your plans will succeed. Proverbs 21.5, Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. God says, Go ahead and plan. It, it may not happen, but you go ahead and plan. Make your plan. Live your plan. Because God is always in control. Just remember that in your plans, your life and your plans can change in a heartbeat. <clears throat> Daniel would never have planned to leave home, to leave family. Daniel would never have planned to work for a boss that was going to end up killing his homeland people and destroying the city on the hill that was God's famous city of Mount Zion. You, you go down the list. He would not have planned it for that. There's only one thing you can be certain of, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when you make your plans, you put your plans in the hands of the God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Folks, the God that directed Daniel's life is the same God we serve. And if he took care of Daniel, he can see us through as well. Without him, without him, you have nothing. All we have is chaos in the moments of life. But with him, we have hope when life changes in the blink of an eye without warning. Here's something else. You may face decisions you never imagined. You may face some decisions you never imagined. Have you ever considered the explosion of choices and decisions that we have every day? Today, the average American supermarket carries over 48,000 items you go to the grocery store, you've got 48,000 items to choose from. That's five times more than a grocery store carried in 1975. Tropicana turns out more than 20 varieties of freshly pulped orange juice. Who needs 20 varieties of orange juice? Big, big box discount stores provide over 100,000 different types of consumer goods. Amazon currently offers over 32 million book titles. Wow. Just think of our array of choices. Coffee comes in tall, short, skinny, decaf, flavored, iced, spiced, frappe, and more. 
Blue jeans come flared, bootlegs, skinny, cropped, straight, low-rise, beach-rinsed, dark-washed, pre-washed, and already torn and ripped for your convenience. <laughs> Moisturizer. Moisturizer promises to nourish, lift, smooth, revitalize, condition, firm, refresh, and rejuvenate. So why don't we all look like babies? Pictures, video, and music can be shot, viewed, recorded, downloaded, sent, or streamed on all manner of devices. Do you realize the, the mag magnanimity of choices before us? A recent study shows that everyone is bombarded by the equivalent of 174 newspapers of data every day. Every day, people read enough words via social media, the internet, texts, and emails to read the first five books of the Old Testament every day. I guess we don't have an excuse for not reading the word. Research reported in the journal Science relates that there is now 295 exabytes of data floating around the world. That's 295 followed by 20 zeros, pieces of information. That's 315 times the number of grains of sand on the earth. Wow. And yet, and yet, Dr. Martin Hilbert of the study points out that that 295 followed by 20 zeros is still less than 1% of the information that is stored in the DNA of a single human being. Oh, people, is it conceivable that DNA could be the result of just, well, random chance? Or does DNA shout the design of an intelligent, beneficent, grand and glorious God of the universe? We may think that having so many choices is really great, but researcher Barry Schwartz in his book, The Paradox of Choice, claims that we've reached the point where choice no longer liberates but debilitates. It might even be said to tyrannize. We don't know much about Daniel's family or his first 16 years of life, but we do know that he was born of nobility and he was fit for service in a palace. But in his wildest imagination, I don't think he ever contemplated the thought that he would serve a foreign king in a foreign culture with a foreign language. This was not the life that he had prepared or planned for. So Daniel had to make a choice. He could spend his time and energy in pity and bitterness over the plans that didn't happen. Or he could spend his time and energy remaking and retooling his plans because of what had just happened happened. It wasn't a big multiple choice test. There were just two options on the test. Live in the past or move on into the future. And it's not like we have the options today that you find in your local coffee shop. We got two choices when the bottom falls out of our life. We can either, we can either be bitter and pitiful because life didn't turn out like we wanted it to or we can choose to start again and let God remake us and retool us for a future down the road and do the best with what we have. The stakes are high. Your attitudinal choice, when things don't go well, will shape all of your tomorrows. 
Make the right choice. Let God take your future. You move on past what just happened and say, okay, God, not what I wanted, not what I had planned, but you're still leading and I'm still following. And here's how we help make that challenge better. We make a commitment to always be faithful to God. Always be faithful to God. Jeremiah was left in Jerusalem and he wrote a letter to the exiles in Babylon and sent it by two ambassadors to the king. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if those ambassadors actually brought it to Daniel before it made it to the king. Now, when, when, I, when you ask people some of their favorite verses in scripture, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 always comes as one of people's tops, top favorites. The problem is we, we forget the context of that verse. That verse comes in a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah to the people who have lost everything and now find themselves as captives in a foreign land under a wicked king. Changes the meaning of the verse a little bit, doesn't it? Listen to what the prophet wrote because God directed it in right. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 4. This is what the Lord of, the hev of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. You mean I'm supposed to benefit Babylon? Yes, work for the peace. Of, the, of that city. Pray to the Lord for it and for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they're telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. That's where that verse comes in. God is saying, you're going to be here for a long time. Make the most of it. You stay faithful to me. I'll get you home. So here are some things that we need to remember. When you lose your job, when your family falls apart, when your, the health issues of your life change how you're going to live to the last breath, remember these. Make the most of your new circumstances. We're going to take the same advice that Jeremiah gives to the people of Babylon, the, 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 the exiles in Babylon. Make the most of your new circumstances. Settle down, plant a garden, raise a family. In other words, make the most of where you are. We need to do that too. No matter where you find yourself, be there with all of your heart and all of your mind. If you spend all of your time longing for the past, you'll miss today and you'll handicap your tomorrows. So, make the most of your new circumstances. Work for the good of the place where you are, he says. Don't try to create a success just for yourself. Work for the success of others around you. When you try to improve the circumstances for others, it will make your life better. And then pray about your new situation. Remember, God promised in Romans chapter 8 that he can bring good out of anything. And that promise is for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
So take your new burdens and your new bitterness about what has happened to God and let him help you refocus and find renewal and be faithful to God. God has a plan, so don't change your allegiance because you're afraid that God has somehow abandoned you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel right before he died, gave this word to Joshua and the people. I think it applies to us too. Deuteronomy 31.8 said, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Oh, folks, what, what can't we face in life if we know that God will never leave us or forsake us? Whatever happens in life, you stay faithful to the Lord. Let him work out his plan in you. You do your best and you let God do the rest. Well, let me close quickly by reminding you, I, the, the, a lot of lessons out of Daniel I, I have started learning in the past. But back in 1990, uh, we knew that our, our uh, property was just too limiting. We had two and a half acres down the road, down on Winslow, where the, where the old building is. If you don't know where that is, if you turn to go to the YMCA, uh, the church building that sits right across from that is, was our old location. And uh, I had started looking for, for property. And this area over here, where, where the Kensington neighborhood is located now, uh, there were 14 acres there. We were talking, and it seemed like the perfect place to go. And, and through some miscommunication, and I don't believe anybody's fault, it sold before we had a chance to have a congregational meeting and vote to, to, uh, to buy it. I was devastated. I was absolutely, And I was devastated because that was not our first setback. Because prior to that, I'd been working on some property across the road from where the church building was. That It's where the Winslow Farms neighborhood is now. And finally, had gotten a price from the family that owned that property. And it was so exorbitant, we couldn't even begin to think about affording to buy it, let alone building there. So that was the first knock. And then we had this, this the Kensington area that, that fell through our hands. And, and I prayed with a not very good attitude, I will tell you. And I said, God... Why? I mean, I thought we had the perfect place. Or we need room, Lord. What? And, and I, was not, I was not a happy camper. And then suddenly, without warning, this property came up for sale. It was owned by a company. They already had a, a planned urban development laid out for this. And, and something happened. They put the property up for sale. If I remember right, it, it ended up being about the same price or even less than what the property over there would have been and certainly a lot less than the property across from the church building at the time. And we got 20 acres, not 14 and not five, but 20 acres to start with. And can, can you think of any other spot on this end of town for a more grand place for a church family to call home than this hilltop? It was like God was saying, you know, you're not very patient elsewhere. I had a plan all along. You just needed to trust me. So we bought the property. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then in 1991, we had a church fire because I don't think God thought we were moving fast enough at that time. And, and the fire moved us to come right on up here. And well, you can say the rest is, is sort of history. I learned God always has a plan. God has a way. I'm not always patient enough to see it. But I do know this. No matter what happens here in your life, be faithful to him like Daniel was. And everything, everything will work out. Maybe it'll work out in this life. Maybe it won't work out in this life. But everything will certainly work out.
when we relocate to our eternal home. That's God's promise. And I cherish that assurance. We see it in Daniel. We see it in our lives. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.